Good morning. It's always good to uh, be able to come to Miller Christian Church and share and just be kind of back and come to worship with brother-in-laws and families, Morgan and Milton here, and it's a great time. If I didn't give you a hard time, it just wouldn't be right, would it? <laughs> Let's, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at Jeremiah chapter 3 this morning, kind of a maybe obscure place to go, but some really important things to understand and Truths and it's Father's Day today, and happy Father's Day to you that are dads. Um, but we really see a picture of our loving Father in this, in this, these verses here. So I think it's worthwhile for us to look at this and just understand some characteristics of, of God. So let's bow in prayer, and then we'll look into this. Uh, Almighty God, as we begin our time today, I ask that you would help us to see our needs, to see our spiritual need, and uh, Lord, just to see the goodness of you to see your heart, and uh, I just ask that you would guide and guard the words that would be shared. Father, may you help hearts to be open to hear that the inner being of us would be changed into more what you would want us to be. God, may we be encouraged, and may we be challenged uh, that we would love and serve you better uh, in this day and all the days of our life. We just ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jeremiah chapter 3, we're going to kind of jump into this here. And uh, God's got some pretty scathing rebuke, or has a scathing rebuke against Israel and Judah at this time. Um, and uh, Jeremiah was written more to the southern kingdom of Judah. But uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, for just a little bit of history, had been taken into exile by the Assyrians. And uh, Judah was getting close to doing the same thing of being taken into exile with the Babylonians. And the reason for that is because of the idolatry that, that both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, were about uh, in, their, in their kingdoms. And uh, so God gives a, a plea and a rebuke to the kingdom of Israel and also to Judah in Jeremiah chapter 3. And, and what I want to see this morning is that we would see our spiritual needs. And we definitely have a spiritual need that is addressed here. And uh, we just want to really hopefully uh, and prayerfully uh, have you consider a few things this morning. Uh, So Jeremiah chapter 3, I realize that there's some imagery in here that's maybe a little uncomfortable. And yet it is God's word and it's really important for us to understand and and truly dig in and and understand this. So we're going to look at chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been violated. By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert. And you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Have you not now just called to me? My father, thou art the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken and have done evil things, and you have had your way. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. 
And I thought after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Today, what I want to do is I want to discuss uh, three stages in sin. And, and to really understand, I think it's important, sometimes we probably don't hear enough or have preached enough about sinfulness in our life and, and uh, just uh, what we need to be about and so we're going to look at three different aspects uh, when we deal with sin. Uh, we're going to look at the rebuke, a remorse, and a response that we should have. And we're going to start with the rebuke. And you can see pretty evidently in chapter 3 of Jeremiah that God has a rebuke against Judah. It's a disapproval of what they are doing. But not only Judah, but also Israel and uh, as I told you earlier, Israel is already suffering some of that rebuke and the consequences of what they had done. In verse 1, the verse and the reference that uh, Jeremiah is referring to is back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And in those verses in Deuteronomy, uh, God is talking about divorce. And basically he says, if a man divorces his wife and then she, his wife, would remarry somebody else, the first husband was forbidden to take back uh, that wife again, even if that wife's second husband divorced her or died. She was not able to. God said that that was wrong for that to take place. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verse 24, God talks about that this is an abomination before the Lord, that this is something that he hates, that it brings sin on the land that the land will be complete, uh, excuse me, polluted, defiled, and alienated because of people doing this. Transgressing God's laws, violating his statutes, and breaking his covenant all contribute to pollution of the land. Another example of this you can see in Joshua chapter 7, where Achan sins. If you remember the story, uh, God, when uh, the Israelites came into the promised land and took over Jericho, uh, God said, none of, the, none of the good, like the gold and all the, the plunder that was going to be taken was all his, and nobody else could have it. But Achan stole some of it. And if you remember the story, uh, Achan's sin was not attributed only to himself, but to all of Israel. And so Israel had consequences. They were not able to take over the next town that they were going to uh, invade because of Achan's sin. And if you read in there, what it says is, in the Bible, it says Israel has sinned, not just one man, that Achan's actions brought sin to all the people of that nation. So as we look at this, that's kind of the, the behind the scenes as far as this verse one. But it goes on in verse one, it says, but you are a harlot with many lovers. God is talking to Judah here. Harlot is a very strong word. It's very strong imagery. It's a word used to describe a person who has illegal sinful and immoral contacts with other people. So when God calls Judah a harlot, he's saying that she, the people of Judah, 
have had illegal, sinful, and immoral contact with false gods and religions. In verse uh, 28 of chapter 2, it's really interesting if you look back there, it says that as many as the number of the cities of Judah uh, are the gods that they have made for themselves, that they have been worshiping these false gods, and there's many, many of them. The people of Judah were in relationships with false gods. And so Judah was committing spiritual adultery through idolatry. Judah had been married to many husbands, false gods in a sense, and they were being unfaithful to their first husband, God, by worshiping these many false gods of other nations. You know, if you look back at the Old Testament, it's a very sad truth, but one of the main sins of Israel was always falling into uh, spiritual adultery through idolatry. They were always pursuing false gods. They were always playing the harlot. It's no wonder why we see the first commandment being what it is, because God knows the heart of man. Throughout the whole, whole Old Testament, God, uh, we see God constantly addressing idolatry. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, and we have to look at this ourselves because it's so easy. People are idol magnets. Israel and Judah were idol magnets. They ran to them very quickly in their life, and we can do the same. Judges 2, 21 and 22, God says there, why, did, why does he, uh, he tested them? He says, I will test them. I'm going to see if they will keep the way of the Lord or not. And so God uh, allowed them to be, to be tested, and many times they ended up failing. And yet, if you look at the end of verse 1, God says, yet you turn to me. So some translations make this sound as an invitation Others make it sound as an accusation that God is giving, that he's accusing Judah and Israel of wanting to return to him just kind of lightly, but not really in the right, proper ways. Uh, and so it's all how you interpret the Hebrew here is what you have to kind of deal with. And I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but I went to some people that I would trust, men that I would trust. And uh, I truly believe that the best reading that you can have is one where it is God saying and asking them to turn back to him. And so uh, God would say, maybe in better one than even in my, how my Bible reads it is, yet return to me. So even though you have played the harlot, even though you have done all the sinful things, return to me. And it's amazing that if a sinful man could not take back his previous wife, how in the world could God take back his wife, Israel? And yet we see that not only is God willing to take her, invite her back, but he's willing to take back his wife, Israel, if she will turn back to him. What's impossible and what is totally against what God would say is right for humans, God can still do. And I think we see that as part of him being our good father. And what an amazing father it is. And he is glorified for that. So in verse 2, as we go on, lift up your eyes. God, God wants Judah, he wants Israel to see their sinfulness. He says, look what you have done. Be aware of all the places that you have committed your spiritual adultery. See your sin is what God is trying to get at here. He says, lift up your eyes to the bare heights. The bare heights were the places where they had the high places. These were the places where idol worship took place. This is where the immoral activities even in Israel, took place with the worship of false gods. 
And God says, where have you not been violated? Violated is an obscene word here. Uh, pretty much meaning, where have you not been abused? Where have you not been corrupted spiritually and ravished by false gods? And God continues on in verse 2, and he says, These are the places, look, by the roads you have sat for them, like an Arab. Arabs were notorious for being bandits, and so many times they sat by the roadways waiting for people to come by. They also were known to sell goods to passing travelers. Harlots also sat by the road, as Tamar did in Genesis 38. The idea is that the people of Judah were not minding their own business. They were looking for sin. They were intentionally looking for sin. They were seeking it out. Sin wasn't coming to them. They were moving towards it. And God says in his rebuke, you have polluted the land with your harlotry and wickedness. All of the land is evil and sinful. The people thought nothing of them worshiping their false gods. It was just part of life for them. And this wickedness depicts a very negative inner attitude towards God. And so what we see are consequences for the sinfulness of Judah and Israel. There was no rain. Verse 3, God was offended and displeased. In verse 4 and 5, what you see is God tells his people what they should do. And again, we see uh, the loving God. Will you not call to me? Okay, so Judah, you have played the harlot. You have done all this sinful, abominable stuff. Will you not call to me? Despite your wanderings away, I'm inviting you to return back to me. That they should look at him as their father. They should look at him as their guide. They should see themselves as those who need guidance and help. And as a youth that needs to be guided. They should hope that God would not remain angry with them. As God says on, it says, You have spoken and done evil things. Judah, you worshipped with your mouths false gods. And instead of crying out in repentance, you have tried to do as much evil as you could. I always find this last sentence of verse 5 very interesting. You have had your way. You've been able. You did what seemed right to you. You have been sinfully able to go as far as you possibly could go. Reminds me of Judges 21, 25, where it says, Everyone did right what was right in their own eyes when there was no spiritual guidance. This is Judah. Now you look at those first five verses and what you see is a, is a scathing rebuke of their sinfulness. But it goes on in verses 6 through 10 as well. God gives titles to Israel and Judah in verses 6 through 10. And they're not, they're not uh, complimentary at all. The first one that you see is Israel. Israel is called faithless Israel. Another word would be backsliding Israel. That Israel had reverted to her old sinful ways and relapsed into sin. And if you look, God says, you know, I, he thought that after she would have go through her sinful state, that she would return to God. But God, but she doesn't. And so in verse 8, God says that he divorces her, divorces Israel. You also see a, a title for Judah. And Judah is treacherous Judah. She acted covertly and deceptively. Ezekiel 16, verse 47 says this. This is talking about Jerusalem. So this would be the kingdom of Judah. It says, yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. So Judah has a scathing rebuke upon them, even in Ezekiel. Judah's sin is worse than Israel's sin. 
Because Judah was able to see all the things that Israel did and should have known that they needed to fear what was going to happen, what happened to Israel would happen to them. But she learned nothing. Judah learned nothing from Israel's sinfulness. Judah, it says at the end here, was a harlot too. Judah committed spiritual adultery. And so in verse 9, what we see in the lightness of the harlotry, of her harlotry, Judah is considered, uh, she considered her unfaithfulness no big deal. It was a light matter to her. There was no burden for sin. It says that she committed adultery with stone and trees. They bowed and worshiped creation instead of the creator. And so Judah, in verse 10, did not return with all her heart, but rather with deception. She goes completely contrary to God's laws. She's not even uncomfortable or embarrassed by what she does. And Judah, what it says there is she pretends to repent, but really did not. And God knows the heart. You can't fool him. And God says she was in deception trying to make me think that she was repentant. What a sad commentary on the people of God, God's chosen. So what does this have to do with us? Because this is a rebuke of Israel and of Judah. But I think one of the things that we have to look at is our, one of our spiritual needs is to be aware of the idolatry that can be so easily found in our life. Do you ever slip into idolatry? I'm ashamed to admit it, but I do. I put other things before God. It may not be an idol of wood or stone or some precious metal, but it's easy to place something in place of God as my most important thing. Something becomes more important than God. And so we need to recognize, and, and I think what you see is you see the heart of God and how much he hates sin. And we need to recognize how much God hates all sin. And idolatry is a prevalent one. And we must recognize the idols of our life. And we need to get rid of whatever we make into an idol of our life. Uh, Tim Keller has a quote in his uh, book, Idols of the Heart. He says this, Romans 8 makes it clear that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. At the heart, then, of gospel change is recognizing and changing what we put our minds on. What is your mind upon? Because that is truly the, the focus of your life in many ways. Well, do you see yourself in your sinfulness in the actions of Judah and Israel? Now, we have to be careful. We kind of walk a fine line here because I'm not here to make you defeated. I'm not here to just stand up here and point a finger and say, you need to change. But I do want you to truly look at the sinfulness of your life and see and say, you know what? This is not what I want to be about. And, and I want to be different. Do you see how God hates this spiritual idolatry and adultery? Do you see in yourself the deadliness, the grievous, the heinous, serious, terrible, gross, awful, dreadful, carnal, horrible, foul, abominable, vile sin of the nation of Israel and see that in our sinful state, we would be looked at in the same way by God. It's important to understand, and so please hear this, though. This was a picture of us before we became saved. So sometimes it's still a picture of us in our sinful actions. Although our sins have been forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, 
we have been saved. This is an exact picture, though, of an unbeliever, of someone that has never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Have you ever thought about how much sin in your life comes from idolatry? I would say it's more than what we give it credit for. It does not take us much to commit spiritual adultery. John Calvin said this of an unbeliever, an unregenerate person. He says they are idle factories. We all understand that. Believers may even look like this sometimes in our sinful state. But we don't have to stay there. We don't have to be there. So I want to look at a few verses of promise for believers to hold on to, dealing with fighting any sin. And we're going to kind of go through these fast. But um, the first one is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. This is God speaking. He says to Israel, but I believe that we can apply this to our life as well. Then I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What an amazing promise that is. Romans 8.1, I think, is a huge place and promise as well when we're dealing with uh, sin. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That even though our sin should make us mourn, should make us hate it, there is no condemnation for us because Christ has paid the penalty for that. Romans 8, 5 and 9 says, For those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of flesh, as Tim Keller said, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Is your mind on the things of the Spirit? And it says in verse 9, However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We see amazing promises of how our sin is forgiven. And yet, and how it's been removed from us, but we still struggle with sin. And we need to have a proper understanding of our sinfulness as well. We have the power through the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. That's amazing. To overcome the idolatries in our life. Our sin nature wants us to pursue idols in our life, but we must live and believe knowing that we have a different spirit in us that has fought and conquered this desire. Don't refight a one battle in your sin. Understand that we have victory over that already. There's another great assurance and truth found in Romans 6, verses 11 through 12. Uh, Paul speaking here says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we deal with sin, we don't have to beat ourselves up uh, because we know our sin has been taken away, but we need to consider ourselves different, that we are alive to Christ and we are dead to sin. In verse 12, this is even more important, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. The word there, let, is very important. Don't let sin. Sin is not your master. Because if you're a Christian, sin is not your master unless you let it be your master. It can only reign if you allow it to. Don't let it reign, but conquer it by the power and help of the Holy Spirit. John Owen says something great. He says, uh, a quote from him, kill sin or it will be killing you. So what is God's word telling you to consider? 
I want to be clear. We need to hate our sin and we do have sin. Our sin has been removed from us, but we still struggle with the daily lives of sin. We need to look at it properly. We do not need to allow it to defeat us because Jesus took care of our sin. Romans 8 again, there is no condemnation. But I never want to be satisfied in my life and just say, okay, well, I don't have to worry about sin because it's been taken care of. There's no condemnation for me. I want to strive to kill the sin that I still struggle with in this life so I can become more holy, more sanctified. Knowing all the time that Jesus Christ's blood covers my failures, covers and has removed my sin from me, I still want to kill the sin that is in my life because I want to be as holy as possible for my Savior and my God. God's rebuke should bring Judah and us as we look at how God hates this stuff, this sin, to a state of remorse. Now, again, it's not a defeated type here, and so I have to be careful But do you recognize the need to be remorseful in your sinfulness? Do you really hate the sin in your life? If you look back at verse 3 of Jeremiah chapter 3, and I skipped over this this second part of verse 3 until now because I think it's so important for us to look at. Uh, I've read Jeremiah many times, and for some reason when I started to prepare this sermon, this really stood out to me. Uh, It just kind of really caught my attention. The second part of verse 3 It says this about Judah. Yet you, Judah, had a harlot's forehead. It's kind of an interesting uh, picture. And it says, you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. You know, the common reaction when people are caught in sin with any moral character, if they have moral character at all, is that they're going to be embarrassed. They might even blush with, with what the situation they find themselves in. What God is saying here is Judah is not even embarrassed by their sinfulness. They're not even ashamed. There's no turning bright red on their foreheads. There's no blushing. Judah is completely involved in this sin, and she doesn't care if anybody knows it or not. But it's more than being ashamed because she refuses to be ashamed. This is blatant disobedience and rebellion to God. It's hard-heartedness. And we see the sad reality happen in many other places in Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, it talks about that they were not ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Came out of the same idea here. Jeremiah chapters 42 through 44, Jeremiah is talking with the people who are being rebellious towards God. And uh, he tells them some things. And they say this. They say, we're not going to listen to you. We We don't care what you have to say. You see that unashamedness there. Proverbs 30, verse 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. See, our sins must bring about a remorse, bring about a a guilt, even though they've been removed if we're a believer. We must see that in this sinful body, we must see our depravity and our filth in comparison to a holy God. And there is a cure. We can look at many verses, but for time's sake, we're not going to look at very many, maybe one or two. But I'll list some that you can go back and look at and study. Ezra chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Ezra says there, he confesses, he says, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you because of the, the sinfulness 
that is going on. Not only mine, but my nation, my people's. Romans 6.21 talks about uh, the things that you're now ashamed of. That we see a difference here. There's a heart change. It's not a hard heart. It's a soft heart that even in sin, yes, sin has been removed, but we're ashamed of what we still do. Psalm 51 verse 17. David speaking as he confesses his sin with Bathsheba. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, the first four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, if you look at the Beatitudes and you understand the Beatitudes, this is a step-by-step process that Jesus is talking to his disciples about, about what a true believer will look like, the steps to be a Christian. This is, the verses are describing steps in the salvation process, which are always important for us to remember. The first one, blessed are the, uh, the poor in spirit. And so we're dealing with poor spiritually, a person that is, has nothing to offer God, nothing that can save themselves. Blessed are those who mourn, mourning over their sinfulness, mourning over the fact that they are helpless. There's a remorse there in their sin. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the humble. We must humble ourselves because we understand that we cannot save ourselves. We know that we cannot remove our sin. And so we must humble ourselves and come to God because God can. And we must ask him and accept him uh, and accept what God did through Jesus to remove our sin. And then only when we do that stuff will we hunger and thirst truly for righteousness. This is the proper response even now uh, as we go through life as a believer that we want to constantly be reminded of this. So do you hate your sin? How often do you have a harlot's forehead about all of your sin? Not just the big things, but the little things. I think one thing that you can look at to evaluate is how often do you confess and repent of sin? How much, how much time do you spend on that? Is it once a day, once a week, once a month? Is it more or less? And I'm not wanting to be legalistic, but it's important to evaluate. And I think it says something truly about how serious do you take your sinfulness? It's not that big a deal, then I don't need to worry about it. But if it is something that is big, then all of a sudden it's like, God, I confess this. I repent. And again, not to be defeated because we're not defeated. We have victory over sin through Jesus Christ. But we want to have the proper heart for our Lord and Savior. First Timothy 1, verses 14 through 15, Paul talking, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. We need to see ourselves in this way. Not to be defeated, but to remember our need. Remorse brings us to a proper response. It brings us to our need of repentance. And it helps us to be repenting as we need to. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 11 through 25, we see God pleading with Israel and Judah to return to him. We've already seen him re- encouraging his people to return in chapter 3, but now we see it more uh, in chapter 3, verses 12 through uh, 
uh, 14, that God is talking about Israel, who is already in exile because of their sinfulness and being sent away. But God tells them in verse 12, return. I'm not going to look up you, upon you with anger. I'm kind. Uh, verse 13, only acknowledge your sin. Repent, Israel. Repent. Recognize your sin. See sin for what it is. Verse 14, return. I'm married to you. God just said he was divorced. And he's like, I'm willing to come back and you can be my wife again. I'll bring you home. This is not a cold, dispassionate God. This is a God full of warmth and compassion and love. Pursuing his wayward people. We also see God talking to Judah and Israel in verses 19. That God will call them sons. There's an adoption in view there. And if we are truly a Christian, we've been adopted as well. There is a return that God calls for. It says, return and be healed. You know, this is an important truth to understand. It's an amazing truth about God our Father. But God takes us at our worst. It's not God saying, become faithful and then come to me. God takes us at our worst. He takes you with all of the baggage. And he then works and changes you. He knows what he's getting. It's not that you have to clean yourself up before you come to him. Finally, in verse 21 through 25 of chapter 3, we see a proper response from Judah, from Israel. In verse 21, they recognize what is happening. There is weeping and supplications on the bare heights. So remember, the bare heights were the places, the high places. These are the places of the false worship. These are the places, the immoral activities. And what they see here is these people recognize there is no comfort. There is no joy in the false gods. Those gods will never satisfy. Verse 22, it says, We come to thee because thou art our Lord. That these people are now coming and seeking God. There's a, re, there's a proper response here. In verse 23, the hills and the mountains where false worship happens are a deception. There's nothing there but noise and confusion and disorder. It is worthless. True repentance is to believe. And we see that the God is the salvation of Israel is stated in that verse as well. Verse 24, we come to a confession that says the worship of Baal has cost us much. These people have recognized how worthless and how truly expensive and costly their worship of a false god has been. It says that not only has it cost livestock and sacrifices and those kinds of things, but it's also cost the lives of our sons and daughters through child sacrifices. These people are coming to a realization and a repentance of their actions. In verse 25, finally you see remorse and repentance in chapter 3. It says, let us lie down in shame. Let our humiliation cover us. We have sinned and not obeyed the voice of the Lord. This is the appropriate expression of broken repentance that should mark God's backsliding children. There is no excuse or explanation given. It is brokenness. So when we look at Jeremiah 3, it's easy to ask, why would God want such vile and undeserving people to return to him? Maybe the better question is, why does God want me or has taken me and wants me to continue to return to him in repentance and confession and become his son or daughter. And this is the amazing thing. And, and on Father's Day, what a great thing to look at because God is good. He's a good father. He is God. And most importantly, it brings him glory to take an unholy people or an unholy person and to make it holy 
It's something only that God can do. There is never too much sin compared to his grace and mercy. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, amazing verse. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But when, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's amazing undeserved forgiveness abounds all the more. It says in 1 Timothy 1, 14, And the grace of our Lord was more abundant. God's grace was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. You know, here's the thing we have to understand. Some people look at these verses and, and maybe they say, okay, well, I have sin and God's given me grace. And that grace and sin kind of cancel each other out. It's like five pounds of sin, five pounds of grace. And that is not the correct understanding at all. It is five pounds of sin and five million tons of grace. It is an abundant <laughs> grace compared to the sinfulness. That's the idea that Paul is getting across when he says the abundance of grace. Grace is infinitely more. Sin is far outweighed by the grace of God and by the grace that God gives. Grace is not cheap, though. It was bought with the perfect life of Jesus Christ. It was bought with the precious blood of Christ on the cross. And it was bought with him rising from the dead. Never cheapen grace. We must try to understand how much God does for his children. Because he loves them. So what are your spiritual needs this morning? Do you recognize idolatry and other sin in your life? Big and small. Do you understand your need to kill sin and feel the burden of sin in your life? And again, it's a fine line because my sin has been, I'm no longer condemned. My sin has been removed. And yet, every one of us understands we're still sinful. Does it just become kind of a, oh, well, doesn't really matter, as Judah says in Jeremiah 3, or does it matter? And do, do we respond as Paul responds in Romans chapter 7? What a wretched person I am. Not defeated, but understanding the sinfulness. Are you ashamed of your sin? Do you mourn daily over it and repent? Because we can repent as many times as we need to. Not to be defeated, but to be determined to be different. Because we want to be holy. Do you possess and trust in God's undeserved favor and forgiveness? Do you trust in his abundant grace? You can have that forgiveness of all your sins today. If you're an unbeliever, all you have to do is turn to him. Humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, repent, and put your trust in Christ Jesus. God is worthy of that. And if you already believe, may you continue to recognize your utter dependence on the Savior of your soul. And be encouraged to strive to become more like him every moment of every day. Because he is worthy as well. Let's bow in prayer. God, thank you for being such a great father. For being one who chases after us and draws us to you. For being one that hates sin, even in your children. And yet you have promises that our sin has been removed. Uh, but may we never take that for granted. Lord, may we strive to become holier in our life. God, help us to confess, to repent, to recognize what you, how you want us to live.
so that we will be even holier and more Christ-like. God, thank you for being such a great father, one who loves us, who sent your son to die so that we could have eternal life, so we could call you father and be adopted as sons and daughters. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing act that you did. Lord, as we go through this day, help us to be reminded, to be challenged, to strive to be the children that you call us to be. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.